0: good to see you thanks for making the trek down to this room and thanks to the setup guys for getting everything uh, all positioned. you have to set up more things down here than you have to set up in the room upstairs and so uh, that's a little tricky sometimes especially when you get used to loading the truck a certain way and you have to remember okay got to remember new stuff this week got to put new stuff on here so we don't forget and all that sort of stuff so I'm grateful Um, grateful for that um it's good to be here. It's good to worship with you guys. Uh, I don't know about you. You know, uh, I remember the first time I went in and they were singing like songs in church, and I was kind of like, because I didn't, I didn't really grow up in that background. I remember they were singing these songs. And I was kind of like, hmm, yeah. I kind of uh, run out of words there. Why are we singing that thing like four times? Uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of you know, I'd wonder about some of those things and uh, and you know, then later on as I was learning different languages and stuff like that and uh, learning like uh, Greek and. Hebrew and stuff, what I began to find was, you know, actually that's just how they express things in other languages a lot of times. Like, you know, we we use things like we would say, well, that's good, or uh, that's better, or that's best. But like if you study in Hebrew, they don't say that. They simply, when they say, like, better, they repeat a word twice when they say, so like when you see in Isaiah, and Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Did you think he just filling that in? You know, I mean, just... did you run out of words there no holy 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 the reason is because what he's saying is that's like est holiest that's what it's supposed to be there so whenever we sing songs like that and there's words extra i always think that's true god you are you're all that and you know probably more we could go four or five times on that so that would be uh That'd be a really good thing. Well, let's do this. When we get started, why don't you find somebody right beside you, and why don't you tell them, "Here's something that I have been learning about faith the last couple of weeks," or "Here's something I hope I learned tonight because maybe I wasn't even here the last couple of weeks, and I'd like to learn something." So, why don't you tell them something you can learn, and I'll call us back here in just a minute. That way, you can meet somebody close to you. Okay, grab them, go. Okay, let me gather us back here. Gather us back slowly but surely. Well, hopefully you uh, figured out something that you've been learning, or someone else has, or you figured out something you want to learn. So uh, we've been in this series for the last three weeks, a series on our faith, and uh, we've kind of begun to look at uh, several different aspects of that. We've looked at, uh, you know, uh, what what is our faith? Um, one of the verses right here in Hebrews eleven one, he says, uh, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Another word, in fact, if you look in several other translations, he'll say something like it's the assurance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen or you know it's it's the expectation of things hoped for it's it's the sense of you know something that you anticipate that is really real that you are looking forward to that's based on real evidence and we looked at that we looked at when you need faith we looked at the foundation of your faith that it's based upon an event in time and space it's based upon the resurrection of uh, Jesus Christ and we looked at that and we looked at how the bible really allows us to understand the significance of that event as well as really understanding the significance of many things we do every day as we live our lives so we began to learn that we began to learn how things kind of fit together and in the way that god has has put the world together so you learn those things tonight what we're going to do is we're going to kind of wrap the series up and we're going to look at the proof of our faith and how do we prove our faith? So before we do that, let me let me take a minute. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, we'll jump in here and uh, and start looking at some things. Father, would you uh, would you choose tonight to really uh, open up your Word to us and really help us, uh, even as it says in Luke uh, uh, twenty four forty five, where it says, and He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Father, would you do that with us? Would you open up our minds to where we can really understand what you've said? And Father, as a result of that, help us to take it, put it into practice, that we can uh, live lives that really uh, are a, a blessing to other people. And we pray those things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we begin to look at the proof of our faith, a lot of times when people think of, you know, kind of what really proves their faith, you know? I mean, sometimes people look at things like they think, well, it's, uh, it's like, you know, I, I, I trust God for lots of stuff. You know, like I, I pray about this, and then God does it, and boy, that's a real proof of my faith. You know, other times people look and they, oh, you know what would be a real proof? I mean, if I could do things, you know, like uh, like you see, uh, you know, Moses doing or something like that. I mean, have you ever guys ever walked to the ocean and kind of just thought, you know, and just kind of, you kind of step back and think, well, maybe, you know, I mean, just, you know, and you think, if I could do that, boy, that would be proof right there. You know, I mean, boy, everybody would be like, oh, I want them to, I want to hang with them. Uh, you know, you, you look at things like that. You look, there's others, as we're going to see a little bit later, there's others that even look at the giftedness and the things that God gives us sometimes as, well, now this, the reason God gives me this is because, see, I have such faith. That's the reason God gives me this gift or that gift or whatever it is. But what does the Bible have to say is really, what is the proof of our faith? How do we really, how do we really determine that? Well, John, when he's writing uh, his account of the life of Jesus, what he does is he begins to tell us about a, a certain time. It was the very last night of Jesus on earth and said, you know, Jesus knew he had, his time had come. He knew that uh, the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew he'd come from the Father. He knew he was returning to the Father. And then he tells the disciples this. Now he's probably choosing his words very carefully at this point because he's got limited time with them. But he turns to his disciples and he says, A new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give you. And I'm sure the disciples go, Oh, new commandment. Pull out the pencils. New commandment. You know, and he says, A new commandment I give you that you love one another. They're like, Love one another. Yeah, it's not new. A new commandment I give you. But then he clarifies that you love one another as I have loved you. So you are to love one another by this will all men know that you are my disciples in that you have love one for another. What Jesus says there, he says, you want to know what the proof is by this will all men know this is the proof by this will all men know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another when you look at the first century the christians it made such a tremendous impact that the gospel goes from this small group in in jerusalem and it spreads and, in, and within you know just a short span of time becomes the religion of the realm and it spreads all over the mediterranean spreads to northern Africa, begins to spread to england spreads all over the place why because of how these people loved one another now, sometimes if we aren't careful, we'll miss the significance of what Jesus said just because of the sheer simplicity of it. We'll look at that sometimes and we'll think, really? Love one? That's a proof? Well, that's not hard. Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, you know, but you, you look there. I mean, this was so. This was such a big deal to these guys. I mean, the apostle John who wrote this, he uh, later on in his life, one of the church fathers, Jerome, talks about. He said, John, when he got older, he would quote this verse. And then he would say, you know, it's the Lord's command, and if we faithfully fulfill it, it's enough. It's the Lord's command, and if we faithfully fulfill it, it's enough. And he's really, what he's trying to say is, guys, this is what we are supposed to be about. Now, one of the things I've seen is this. A lot of times today, people don't make a choice to become followers of Christ, and it has really nothing to do that the evidence is not compelling. Not at all. Too often what it has to do with is the followers aren't compelling. Too often what they've seen is some people whose lives don't really seem like they love. Too often what they've seen is some people who really think, eh, that's kind of optional. No, it's not. This is the proof. This is the proof right here. Now, does that mean these first century guys always got it right? Is that what that means? I mean, you know, like they were like wonderful and we're not. No, not at all. In fact, what we're going to see tonight is we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at a group that got it wrong most of the time. In fact, Paul writes them a letter to just say, hey, you're getting it wrong. Let me tell you how to get it right. And so we're going to look at that and begin to figure out a little bit about that. In fact, this group was a a bunch of folks that lived in this town called Corinth. They were called the Corinthians. Go figure. And so, you know, they, they lived in this town. Now, Paul had been there several years earlier, and he'd started this church, and So he's gotten this church launched and he's left. And now he's begun to hear through a variety of sources about different problems, different things that they're experiencing. This has come to his attention. And so what Paul does is Paul writes this letter to try to correct a lot of the things that had come up, a lot of the questions these people had had, a lot of the uh, actions they were involved with. He writes this letter to try to correct some of that. And so he goes through and he addresses a variety of problems. And and the problem with the Corinthians for the main part was this. They made most of their decisions just simply based around themselves. You know, what do I want to do? What do I not want to do? What do I like? What do I not like? What do I think is right? Instead of having a reference point for, you know, well, what does God say? Their reference point was themselves. And so Paul goes in, he's correcting a lot of different things to start with. But then he gets to this issue of spiritual gifts. And so when you read along there in about chapter 12, starting in chapter 12, he starts talking to them. And he says, now, you know, hey, let's talk about these gifts. And then he reminds them, guys, we're all a body. Because some of them had this idea, hey, you know what? I've got these gifts. I think these gifts are better than your gifts, which you know what that means. God loves me more than you, and uh, probably because of my great faith. And, uh, you know, and then these other people go, oh, We must be bad people. God doesn't love us as much as him. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, You know, and they would kind of go back and forth. And Paul comes in and goes, no, 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 no. No, guys, we are a body. We are a body. Everybody, we don't have like a reunion of toenails or, you know, we don't have this whole group of fingers over here. No, no, we're a body. So there's all sorts of different parts. Everybody has a different role to play. So he says, you need to remember we're a body. And so he begins to talk to him about that. But then he wraps it up, and he comes to the very end of chapter 12, and he has this verse. He says, but let me show you a still more excellent way, a still more excellent way. And then he begins a chapter that is probably one of the most well-known chapters around. I mean, those that are believers know about this chapter. Those that aren't believers know about this chapter. This chapter is sung about all the times. People stencil it on pillows. They put it on little rugs, you know, they they have it in their weddings. They have, I mean, it's all over the place. You know, you have it on coffee mugs. And you're like, what is that doing on a coffee mug? You know, but I mean, it's just all over the place. You know what I mean? And he begins to look at some of these verses. And so we'll look here in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul starts off, and they've been talking about, one of the gifts they've been talking about is like the gift of, of like speaking in tongues and things like that. And they've also talked about prophecy, and they've talked about really sacrificing all this stuff. And so Paul starts off, and he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I mean, not just men, but angels, but have not love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, you know what? You know what you hear when you pass by the pagan temples? The gong, gong, gong. He says, you know what? If you aren't practicing gifts within the context of love, that's just what you are. Gong, You know, not just not helpful, kind of annoying. Okay, he said, you know, I mean, you you need to understand. Then he goes on, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Now, in the first place, nobody has all knowledge and all mysteries, and he's exaggerating. He said, you know, but if I did, if I had all of that, but didn't practice it within the context of love, you know, I'm nothing. I'm really nothing. And then he says, now, for those of you that talk about your great sacrifice, he says, let me tell you. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. He said, it really doesn't matter how much you sacrifice. If it's not in line with the right things, love, then it really doesn't matter. And then he begins to describe the very love he's talking about. And this is what you see on all the pillows. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. One of the very first things that you see as you look at these verses is he's not talking about feelings here. He's talking about actions. Too often when we talk about love, we're like, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not sure I really love that person. And what we really mean is I don't really have this feeling. You know, like when you walk in and, to a crowded room and then you look across and somehow you'll know. And, you know, no, how do you know? You know, well, I mean, because, you know, that's what that's what we think love is. We, we take our cues on love too often from the movies rather than we take them from the scriptures. And the scripture says, no, no, love is not just an emotion. Love is a verb. In fact, if you see right here, what you'll see is each one of these, there's like 15 different verbs that are there that he uses to talk about love. Eight of them where he says love is not like this. Seven of them where he says love is like this. And so what he wants you to see is very, very accurate, you know, It's something that you will never perfect in one day's time. So you can't just decide today, you know what? Tomorrow I will be a loving person. (laughs) No, no. These are patterns that are cultivated over time in the context of community that supports and models them themselves. Let me tell you that again. These are patterns that are cultivated over time in the context of a community that supports them and models them themselves. Now, Paul isn't talking about just doing loving things here. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about just doing loving things. He's talking about forming loving character, really developing a different character. Now, we know that in two ways. One, we know it by the kind of verbs that he was using there. And the reason we know that is because all of the verbs are in present tense. And when you're studying in Greek, what you find is present tense means these are things that are expressed in a habitual way. You're doing them now, and you continue to do them and do them and do them. It's a habitual thing. But the second reason we know that is the way he started it off at the end of chapter 12, when he says, let me show you a more excellent way. The word way there, it's it's really a word, it means like a path, a path. This is a pathway that you're going to begin to go down. And he's talking here about living according to a pattern developed over time. He says, you need to learn to live according to this pattern, this pattern of love that is developed over time. You need to begin to learn to do that. So if we're to develop this character of love and and we're supposed to learn this way of love, well, then, you know, how do you do that? Well, you do that like you develop any other character trait. And so we're going to look at that. How how do you form character? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is a good question. So uh, here's how you form character. First of all, you start off in a place of unconscious unconsciousness. Now, what that really means is this. You're dumb and you don't even know you're dumb, okay? You're stupid and you don't even realize it. Now, many of you have faced this. Um, you probably don't remember it, or you would rather not recall it, but you know it's true. all of us are at that point in some facet of our lives we don 't know something, and we don't even know that we don't know it. you know um, you you start there and you're kind of like do i need do I need to change and then then you find you do now when you move from unconscious unconsciousness, you move over to a state of conscious unconscious this means You're still stupid, but you know that you're stupid now, okay? You have become aware. You think, oh, I get it. It's that I don't get it. Right, 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 right. Now you're getting it. And so you move from a state of conscious unconsciousness down to a state of conscious consciousness. Now, probably the best way to describe this is if you want to see a picture of conscious consciousness, you look at someone who has just gotten their driver's license. This is a consciously conscious person. I mean, they walk in, they sit down, 10, 2. Uh, they're sitting there, they're checking the mirror, they're checking the seatbelt, they're checking everything, they're moving the seat back and forth. They're like, you know, I mean, 15 minutes before you get started down the driveway, you know, they're checking everything, you know. Later on, you move from conscious consciousness to unconscious consciousness. You suddenly arrive at campus and you don't remember starting the car. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, I don't know, you know. I probably should have buckled my seatbelt. Uh, you know, you kind of get out, you know. Now, How do you move along these stages? How do you move along from this? Well, from unconscious unconsciousness to conscious unconsciousness, you just move along there with exposure. Sometimes that's through a conversation. Somebody talks to you about something like someone says, oh, man, when you did that the other day, that was so kind of you. That's really good. I wish more guys were like that. And you go, oh, I'm supposed to be kind. Mm, note to self. and Especially because if it's a girl that mentioned it, you're like, oh, note to self. Yeah, you, know, you write that one down. Be kind, okay, yeah, yeah. Now you become aware of it. Now, how do you move from this to a state of context? Well, that's education right there. There you begin to study that. You begin to find, who can I learn about this kindness from? And what does it mean? How do I repeat this behavior, you know, so that I am rewarded justly? And so you begin to look at that. Then you move from conscious-unconscious to unconscious conscious, where it's just a habit that you do all the time, simply by experience. You practice it again and again and again and again. And as you begin to practice that, as you begin to put some experience to that, what you find is you really begin to develop some patterns. Now, a way to kind of think about this, it's kind of like learning a language or learning to play an instrument. Where's Ian? Where's Ian? Ian's right here. Ian, did you just roll out of bed one morning and, and just think, I know how to play a piano. I better go find one. Did did that happen? Yeah, pretty, much. pretty much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ian's the exception. Okay. No, you know what? That doesn't normally happen. Nor have any of you woken up and, and you just, you know, suddenly you wake up and you're going, you know, your mom says, how you doing? You go, hola. <laughs> she goes, what? <laughs> and you're going, I don't know, mom. I just, you know, it's just kind of happening. I, I, I don't know, you know. Uh, No, that didn't happen like that. You know what? It takes two things. If you want to learn a language, if you want to learn to play an instrument, if you want to develop character, it takes two things. Intentionality and practice. Intentionality and practice. You have to decide, I'm going to work on this, and then you have to actually work on it. It takes both. It takes intentionality, it takes practice. So how do you begin to put love into practice? How do you begin to do that? Well, I'm going to talk to you about three things about how you do that. One of the very first things you do, begin to visualize in your mind what would it look like for you to do that. Now, the scriptures would call this meditation. You you begin to meditate. You begin to think about what would this look like if I put this into practice. So you take something like chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and piece by piece you begin to look at that you begin to think about it you begin to think about the opposite of that you begin to ask yourself questions like this like love is patient what would it look like for me to be patient like with my dad what would it look like for me to be patient with my mom what would it look like for me to be patient with my little sister getting tougher What would it look like for me to be patient with my roommate? You know, what would it take for me to be patient with my classmate or my friends or better yet, my non-friends, not enemies, because none of us have enemies. But if we have non-friends, they're kind of the same thing. You know, how would it look for me to actually be patient with those people? And you began to think through that. You began to work through that. The second thing you began to do, you began to practice this. You begin to look at it. You begin to practice. One of the things you find is this. The more you practice patience, the more of a patient person you become. The more you practice kindness, the more of a kind person you become. Now, the converse is also true, which we'll talk about in a minute. C.S. Lewis, in, in a book that, if you've never read it, I'd encourage you to read it sometime, called Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis said it it really well. He said this. He said, do not waste time bothering whether you love, quote, unquote, your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. The same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become and so on in a vicious cycle forever. So that seems easy enough, right? I mean, just begin to begin to do it. Well, what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to just pick three out of here, out of this list from 13, 4 through 7, and I want us to just kind of camp a little bit on three of these and talk a little bit about, you know, see how, how easy is this. Like um, one of the first ones, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, you know, some of you are like, are all of those words in the original language? Yeah. I mean, like, no records? Yeah. Not like many records? No. Like a few records? No, no records. No records. No records. Have you ever thought about this? Why do you keep records? Because you want to remember what you're owed, right? That's what you keep records for. See, every time somebody hurts us, every whether it's real or whether it's just perceived, every time we feel like we've suffered something at the hands of somebody else through something they did or through something they said or through something they didn't do that they should have done, every time they do that, if we're not real careful, we log that in. Yep, there it is, 25th. I will remember this one. Because what we're thinking is, they owe me. They owe me. And if we're not careful, we do this again and again and again. In fact, before long, we carry these things around with us. We you know, we, we carry them around with us season after season. I mean, sometimes we'll carry them around for a few weeks. Sometimes we'll carry them around for years. Sometimes you find people, and they're ticked off, and they don't even remember why they're ticked off. They're just ticked, you know how are you doing? I'm fine. You know, good. <laughs> well, it's so good to see that. You know, I mean, and you find these, well, what is the problem? Well, they have been harboring that I mean, some people, you know, they call it different things. Well, I'm just kind of stewing over things, you know. Other people are just brooding. Other people are more, you know, realistic. I'm bitter. And you're like, yes, you are bitter. You know, I mean, they're just, you know, they have just different things, but what he says here, love keeps no records. Now, you know what, if you're going to do that, You know what you're going to have to choose to do? Forgive. You're going to have to choose to just let it go. You may think, well, now, Neil, you don't exactly know what happened to me. You're right, I don't. But what I do know is this. Forgiveness is a choice. And you can do it. And you think, well, (laughs) if you knew, you, you wouldn't say that. And I think, well, you know. I don't know, but I would say that. In fact, if we're having real trouble forgiving, more often than not, it's because we're focusing on what was done to us instead of what was done for us. See, when you choose to keep no records, what you're saying is this. Your decision is this. You owe me nothing. Ledger's clear. You owe me nothing. That one's not too easy. Let's look, look at another one. That's kind of hard. Um, how about this one? Love, always trust. Always trust. We were just chatting about this one as a staff the other day. Love, always trust. Do you tend to believe the best? I mean, you know, when you've got somebody and, you know, they say, hey, you wait outside the theater and, no problem, because, you know, uh, you meet me right outside the theater, and I'll have a ticket for you. And the show starts at 8 o'clock, and, you know, you pull in right on time at 8.05, and, and you know, they're not there. Now, is the very first thought in your mind, I'll bet they have a wonderful reason for not being here. In fact, I'll bet they're doing something very important. Or is, the, is your thought, <laughs> Should have known better than that. Should have known better than to trust them. I'll tell you what. In fact, boy, I remember, and you begin to remember all these things, you know. See, what he says here, love, always trusts. What he's saying is this. over and 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 over every single day of your life, the expectations that you have And the actual follow-through of some other people, there's going to be gaps. Now, every time there's a gap, what you have to ask yourself is, what are you going to fill that with? Love fills it with trust. Lack of love fills it with suspicion. Well, you know, I wonder why they're doing that. Probably not a very good reason, you know. I've always thought, you know, they never did like me anyway. That's why. I am just a martyr, you know. You know, you come up with all kinds of things. But you know what he says? Love fills it with trust over and over and over and over and over. And you're thinking, well, that's harder than the first one. Cheer up, it gets worse. Um, Third one, and last one we'll look at. Love always perseveres always, always. Like, that seems like a long time. Yeah, always. Always perseveres. In fact, love always perseveres. In other words, love always doesn't keep records. Love always trusts. Love always perseveres. Now, you may look at that, (laughs) you may think, well, let me tell you something. If you knew how many times this person has hurt me, then you wouldn't think I needed to persevere. Love always perseveres. Well, my gosh, I mean, who's going to watch out for me? I mean, my gosh, if I don't watch out, who's going to watch out for me? I mean, good night. I mean, I. Well, in the first place, you'll help yourself out a lot if you start telling yourself the truth. You know, one of the things we do, and one of the reasons we think we can't persevere, is we tell ourselves something like this: "I can't take it one more time." Well, the truth is, you can take it a hundred more times if you need to. You think, "Well, yeah, I guess I could," but when it gets to a hundred, then you could take it another hundred times if you needed to. You're like, "Really? Yeah." Love always perseveres, or you tell yourself, you know, something like. Um, it's it's just too hard. No. The truth is, it's hard, but it's not too hard. It's just hard. Now, men and women, I would encourage you, <laughs> hear me well. Because I know right now, I mean, I remember being in your spot, and I remember sitting there sometimes and thinking, well, you know what? I'm going to make good choices, and I'm going to do well, and so, therefore, this will not be that hard for me. Right. Let's talk in about 20 years. Uh, you know, what you're going to find is this. Now, in about another year and several months, about another year and several months, uh, young Melinda. Raise your hand back there, Melinda. There's young Melinda back there. So there, that's her. Yeah. She says, oh, why does he do that? Uh Yeah. Young Linda and I will have been married for 40 years. Now, I know that's really hard to believe because you're thinking, he's only 45. How could this be? Uh, you know, I know. She stole me at a young age out of my crib, you know. and you know. Oh, it was true. I remember Zorro, and uh, I was there, and, uh, you know, yeah, it's true. But uh, 40 years. Now, if you were to talk to her and you say, hey, I'll bet this has just been... One smooth sailing thing. Being married to someone as wonderful as Neil all these years, I'll bet that's been so simple. And she would go, "Uh uh-huh. And she would look at you. And you say, how did you do that? She said, I persevered. (laughs) And you know what? She would be telling you the truth. She would be telling you the truth because you know what? Many of you are thinking You know, if I get married, I'm not really going to have to persevere that much. Yeah, you are. Well, no. No. We're just going to be like on a honeymoon the rest of our lives. Yeah, You haven't been married, have you? Uh, (laughs) Because one of the very first things you're going to find is, you know, keeps no record of wrongs. Oh. What you find oftentimes, you get into an argument. They do not become hysterical. They become historical. And they go... (laughs) By the way, and they bring out the ledger. And you're going, oh, where did you get a book that big? You know, I needed a book this big. This is just year one. You know, oh, man, you know, and you're kind of looking at that, you know. Now, I tell you this, men and women, because of this. You need to learn to love like this. You need to learn to persevere. You need to learn to trust to fill those gaps with trust, not with suspicion. You need to learn to keep no record of wrongs. And I, like you, would probably think, that's just too hard. How, how does anybody do that? Well, I'm glad you asked that. That's point three. Remember the source. Remember the source. It's not just enough to visualize or practice Remember the source. See, when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, he's not just writing a to-do list of things you need to work on tonight. In fact, what he's writing is a character description of Jesus. He's saying, you want to see what love looks like? This is what it looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I'm sure that as he wrote these things, He just began to cast his eyes upon this is who Jesus is, and he began to write that out. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And he began to go on and on right through that passage describing the person of Jesus. Tim Keller Keller said it this way, Before love is a behavior to a Christian, love is an experience. You have to meet love before you can ever do it. You have to meet love before you can ever do it. Now, you stop and you think about this. Where do you see the ultimate example of love keeps no record of wrongs? Well, it's on the cross where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Where do you see the ultimate example of love always perseveres? You see it with Jesus in the garden when he says, Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not, not what I will, but what you will. Always persevering. Where do you see the ultimate example of love always trust John 20 21 after the resurrection Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says this as the father hath sent me so send I you now you ever thought about that look around you look at at the person on your right look at the person on your left and think about this for a minute when God decided who he was going to trust enough to love other people so that they could understand what he was like, do you see who he chose? Yeah. You and I. And you're kind of thinking, was he aware? Uh, yeah, he was. And he still chose you. Why? Love Always trust. Now, here's the key, though. If you see 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 as a to-do list, something I've got to just go home and just bear up under and do it, you know what? (laughs) It's going to be overwhelming. You're never going to be able to do that. But if you go and you see that this is him loving me like that, then you're going to be able to turn around and do it for others. Because you could never generate this kind of love, but you can pass it on if someone's given it to you. You could never generate this kind of love, but if someone's given it to you, it's not hard for you just to turn around and pass it on to someone else. You always have to remember the source. Visualize it. Yeah, you need to do that. Practice it. (laughs) Yeah. The more you practice it, the more you become that way. But when it's really feeling like, my gosh, this is a chore, allow him to just fill you up with the way he loves you like that. And then you turn around and just pass it on to someone else. That's what you do. So as we think about putting this into action, let me encourage you to do something. Just for a minute, you know, put down your pencils, put down your whatever you're writing with, or if you're not writing with anything, if you're just paying attention, put them down for a second. And just, I want you to close your eyes for a second, I want you to just do something. Play back the tape of your life. Now, for some of you, it's going to be hard. Just play back today or, you know, this week. Play back the tape. And I want you to listen to how you talk. I want you to look at how you treat people. I want you to think about how you think about people. Was it loving? Was it patient? Was it kind? Did it keep no records? Was it always trusting Was it always persevering? See, many of us will spend our lives consistently noticing when other people don't treat us this way. And we we consistently notice when we don't experience love. But rarely do we give thought to when we don't practice it we need to really be ones that do. Wouldn't you like to be loved like he's talking about there? Other people would too. And thus Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children and live a life of love. Or, as John records Jesus telling us, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Father, help us to uh, help us to really lean into you, Father. Um, we don't need faith for things, Father. We need faith for action. We need faith that you are going to love us like this, so we in turn can love others. We know that you are faithful. In fact, even when we are faithless, you are faithful for you cannot deny yourself. So, Father, help us to realize that getting into your word, Father, that's not just a superfluous exercise. God, as we get in there, we see again and again and again how you choose to love us this very same way. And thus, we're reminded that the proof of our faith with others will be we love like you did. Help us to do that, Father. And we pray that in Jesus' name.